another edition of Governed by God, a discussion of law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Leupold, and I appreciate you joining me today. Please, if you have the chance, share the show, like the show, uh, share it with friends, give the stars and the thumbs up and the reviews. Uh, all those things are very helpful to get the message out there. And if you feel called to do so, please visit uh, my Patreon site. If you go to uh, Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and search for Governed by God, you can uh, become a patron and support me. I would greatly appreciate it uh, very much. Keep the lights on, keep things going, as always, very helpful. All right, with that, let's dive into today's episode. First, I want to take a few minutes to discuss the presidential debate that happened last night between President Donald Trump and former Vice President Joe Biden, um, to kind of just summarize the debate, it was a train wreck, uh, to put it lightly. Um, it seemed like there were about, from my, what I can remember, there were six major topics, with uh, each person getting two minutes of an opening statement, um, and then the other person got two minutes, and then they had, I believe it was a 15-minute open discussion, which was supposed to be on the topic, at hand. Usually it wasn't. Sadly, it turned into mostly a shouting match uh, with each side interrupting the other and quite often uh, one side (laughs) fighting with the moderator. And to be honest, uh, President Trump did most of the fighting, most of the arguing with the moderator, most of the interrupting, uh, most of the the shouting. So, uh, but both sides were guilty. And at the end of the day, they just repeated their uh, talking points. There wasn't really anything that was said that really helped, I think. It didn't clarify anything. Uh, The positions weren't further clarified. I didn't find anything particularly convincing as far as having my mind changed by anything. So there's that. But it was mostly annoying to watch, and I really didn't feel like watching it because it was just a bunch of shouting, and it was pure chaos. And uh, I don't know. I, it, it definitely was not the uh, the kind of debate that you would see in like an academic environment with opening statements, rebuttal, cross-examination, and closing statements. And I'm not saying that presidential debates should be like that. I think that some of them should be. But they should at least be more structured, perhaps something like, uh, I'm okay with the two-minute opening statement, and then a five-minute rebuttal of the other person's position, and then a final, maybe five-minute, another rebuttal perhaps, a second rebuttal period of five minutes, and then a two-minute closing statement would have been useful. But it didn't really matter because both sides had no desire, uh, and honestly, mostly President Trump had no desire to follow the rules. So what's the point of having rules if no one's going to follow them? Maybe it's an indication of our you know, maybe it's a good indication of our cultural environment today. I mean, the fact is, is that many Americans are divided and we spend most of the time just repeating the talking points of uh, each side and shouting past each other, shouting over each other, not showing respect, not following the rules of discourse and discussion. So, yeah, maybe the, uh, the uh, debate was a very good representation of the American cultural environment today. So... That's just uh, some initial thoughts on that. Um, So let's move on to my main topic, 
which I wanted to do part two of understanding God's law. Last week, I did a special edition episode uh, where I looked at Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the Supreme Court seat being open, and some things that Pastor Tim Keller said regarding civil government, law, uh, and abortion. So, two weeks ago, though, I had started out talking about how do we as Christians understand God's law. We looked at um, how Jesus expanded God's law, he gets to the heart of the law, and how he counteracts uh, some of the actions of the Pharisees, especially in adding adding to the law and um, creating their own rules, uh, rules that were not in Scripture. So, what I wanted to do today is look at kind of the way in which uh, Christians can take an Old Testament law, apply it to life today as Christians in the church. And I ended the episode two weeks ago looking at the typical way that Christians throughout the ages have divided up God's law. So when they look at the Old Testament, they have categorized each law in one of three ways. It was either a civil law, so it had to do with the nation of Israel's civic duties amongst the citizens between themselves and with them and outsiders. And and in that regard, since the theocratic nation-state of Israel no longer exists, the Old, the Old Testament version of it, uh, those civil laws don't really apply except in their general equity, is what would be said, which basically means general applicability. Um, and we'll get to what I think that refers to and how I think you can kind of uh, you know, show the work and, and, and walk through that. The second category is the ceremonial laws, laws that have to do with the temple worship, cleanliness, uh, food laws, Sabbath laws, things like that. Ba- basically things involving the worship of Israel uh, in the nation. Uh, and then lastly, the moral laws, those laws that are universal and binding upon all people and all cultures at all times. So the, th- the problem and I am I am happy with that threefold categorization. I think it's very useful, and I I think that I'll, I'll look at the uh, method by which I have uh, found to be the most useful, the most biblical, in trying to read Old Testament law. And I and I think most of the time, when you utilize that method, you'll end up putting laws in one of those three categories. But I think if you just just throw laws under those categories you're not showing your work you're kind of speeding a little bit and it can be a little confusing and sometimes not as neat and clean as we'd like it to be and i'll just give one example the issue of the sabbath laws certainly sabbath keeping it's the it's the fourth commandment remember the sabbath keep it holy so is that a moral law i mean typically the ten commandments are highlighted as moral universal always binding laws. Okay, well, the Sabbath law is also a ceremonial law. It has to do with uh, resting from work, and it has to do with uh, worshiping the triune God, worshiping Yahweh in the Old Testament. But then there's also a civil aspect to it, because, uh, for example, in Leviticus chapter 25, 
there is a Sabbath for the land. Okay, so uh, it says here in verse 4, uh, But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your, in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself, and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired worker and the sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. So we have, again, this Sabbath concept. It's not just weekly. It's every seven years. And there was another Sabbath every 50 years. But it had religious ceremonial worship applications. It also had civil applications because it involved providing for the people, the poor, uh, the hard workers, the sojourners, the slaves, everyone in the land. And it had a, um, a moral aspect, one would say, because it's part of the Ten Commandments. So which one is it? Is it all three categories? Or is it just one? Or are there parts of it? And this is where it gets a little bit confusing. So what I find to be useful as a tool is what's called principalism as a method of applying God's law. And really, the bottom line is you take a look at the principle of each law and then you, you draw out those principles and apply them properly today. So you kind of ask yourself three questions. What is the context of the law? Why is the law being given? What is the ultimate purpose or intent of the law? And then you draw from that Old Testament law. You draw its application from Old Covenant Israel and you apply it to the New Covenant Church. Now, you have to do that very carefully. You can't just take an Old Testament law and, and then smack it into a 21st century nation state. Okay, because it doesn't, the line doesn't really draw straight like that because the covenant people of God in the old covenant was the theocratic nation state of Israel. But the covenant people of God in the new covenant is the church, all those who are in Christ. So the law applies directly to them first. We could still draw out applications to... Um, outside of the church, but you first have to uh, go through the church. And even before that, you first have to look at everything in light of Christ. So you take the law, you say, now in light of the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ, now how does that law apply to the new covenant people of God, aka the church today? Then you would say, okay, as Christians, how does that law apply to me? How does that law apply to uh, families, to parents, to Christian parents? So how does that apply to me as a father and as a husband? How does that law apply to me at school or in the workplace? And then how does that law apply and how I treat my neighbor uh, within the civil realm, my local community, my state, my nation? Okay, the government. And that's kind of how you can draw this line uh, and make sure that you're not 
skipping over important parts, jumping to conclusions, and ripping law, the laws out of its context. Where does this concept of principalism come from? I mean, did I, I didn't make it out of thin air. Um, hopefully not. That's not my goal here. I think you can derive it from the New Testament uh, apostles themselves. So we can look at how they took the Old Testament law and how they applied it in their situation. To give one example of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 9 through 12. And in this section, the Apostle Paul is defending his rights as an apostle to receive support from the church. So 1 Corinthians 9, verse 3. So he says, this is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? All right, I'll stop there. So what Paul is getting at here is that the church in Corinth is not either, either they're not able or not willing, I think it's more not willing, to support Paul in his ministry. So they're not providing for him. They're not supporting him uh, with food, clothing, shelter. And essentially, uh, Paul, and later on he'll talk about how he had to make tents. Um, he would He would work. Uh, not to be a burden, but it really was the duty of the church in Corinth to support their ministers. And he he applies this, he applies an Old Testament law to this. He takes the law, and it's a it's a civil law in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy twenty five verse four, where God says, "You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain." Now, what did the what did that law have to do with anything? Well, the point of that law was this. In the Old Testament, uh, oxen were used to tread out the grain for the purpose of eventually making bread. So that's how they would uh, harvest the grain or get or separate uh, the grain from the chaff and from the uh, non-essential or the non-wanted items. And uh, the thing was is that while the oxen are pulling and while they're turning in a circle and while they're treading it out sometimes the oxen would would eat they would they would get hungry and they would eat some of the food that they were making now if you were a particularly stingy uh, farmer and you wanted to make sure that you got every single ounce of produce that you could you would muzzle your oxen so that they had no chance of eating 
anything while they were working. And so God's law prohibited that behavior. Uh, it was cruel to animals to do that. And it was um, inappropriate and, and simply unlawful to not allow the worker to be able to enjoy some of the fruits of their labor. And so the principle underneath that is that the worker should be allowed to enjoy the fruits of their labor. And it's not just oxen, that's just a case study. That's just an example. That would apply to any other animal that was being used for labor and producing food. Um, and Paul says simply, that law was written for our sake. Ours as in New Testament believers. He says that, for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. Now, and he says, if we have sown spiritual things, is it really too much to reap material things from you? So the idea there being in that the church should pay their pastors. They should pay their ministers. They should pay the folks who are providing for their spiritual needs. And Paul defends that position with an Old Testament law that really is a civil law, but he takes it, takes the principle underneath of it, and applies it to the church today. Now, there's another example. In the same letter, if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, um, Paul condemns the church because of some sexual immorality that's taking place inside. And here's what he says in uh, chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Okay. Um, and he goes on from there to explain how God's people are not to associate with sexual immorality within the church. And uh, later on in verse 13 of chapter 5, he, he says, Purge the evil person from among you, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy, and that has to do with capital punishment. That phrase, purge the evil person from among you, was always tied to the death penalty in the Old Testament. Now, how does Paul take that and apply it to the New Testament? He applies it in the matter of excommunication. So the church is, first of all, wrong to allow for this kind of sexual immorality. A, father a man having his father's wife was explicitly condemned in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Leviticus. And such behavior deserved the death penalty in the nation of Israel. And Paul says here, that is excommunication. That man should be excommunicated for what he has done. So he takes the principle of the Old Testament law, still applies sexual, sexual uh, behavior, still matters. There's still a standard of behavior for God's people and um, applies it to the church. And even its, even its punishment, he takes the principle of the punishment, which is, what's the principle of the death penalty? Um, the purging of the evil from among God's people. The removal of, of, of people from the covenant community. Well, in, in Israel, 
that removal was a death penalty. In the church and the new covenant, it's excommunication. Okay, so because the church does not bear the sword to put people to death. So that's how you would draw out that law and apply it to the church today. And I'll give another example, a third example, and that is in Ephesians chapter 6. In verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Okay, so that law is a direct quotation from one of the Ten Commandments. In fact, the fifth commandment of honoring your mother and your father. In the Old Testament, that law had a promise to the to the covenant people of, of God, and the promise was that it may go well with you in the land. So in the land that Israel was inheriting, in the in the in the nation uh, of Canaan, the Canaanites, the seven nations that lived there, um, that land Israel was going to enjoy once they entered that land. And this commandment of honor your father and mother had the promise attached to it that the children would live long in the land if they obeyed their parents and honored them. It's interesting. Paul takes that law, and that law initially had application to to Israelites in uh, Palestine. And now he takes that law, and he applies it to predominantly Gentile believers, because you know Ephesus is a Greek city-state, and he's writing to the Ephesians, which is predominantly a Gentile church, and he's saying to Gentile Christians living not in Israel, but living in, in the Roman Empire, living in Greek territory, okay, he says, children, obey your parents so that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Well, what land? Is it the land of Israel? No, it's not the land of Israel. He's using the concept of the land differently, and it applies to the whole world. And I don't want to get into too much of uh, replacement theology or amillennialism, but I would argue that this is an example where we see that the picture of the land in Israel was a type and a shadow of something greater, which namely the whole world. Okay, um, and this is certainly something that we see in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter four, Paul explicitly talks about the promises to Abraham, and he says in chapter four, verse thirteen, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Why would Paul say that Abraham and his offspring would be heir of the world, cosmos, the Greek word cosmos, world? That doesn't make any sense. Abraham and his offspring were the heir of a particular piece of land in the Middle East. Because I think the argument can be made that uh, the old covenant people of God, of Israel, was a picture of the new covenant church, a separation where God called a certain people out to be his own. And then at the same time, what's circumcision? You see the physical circumcision of the people of Israel becoming heart circumcision, regeneration, salvation uh, for the new covenant believers. 
and then you see the receiving of the land of of ancient uh, Israel being uh, now the inheritance of the world and ultimately a new heavens and a new earth with the new covenant people of God, the, the Christians. And finally, you see the ancient Israelites being set free from physical bondage in Egypt, being a picture of being set free from spiritual, from sin, from us being set free from sin, slavery to sin, bondage to the devil. So I say all that just to point out that it's just, it's important to keep in mind that Paul is taking an Old Testament law and applying it to new, new covenant Gentile Christians not living in the land of Israel. And there, there is a way to apply it. And he does it. Uh, and there's a principle by which we can do it as well when it comes to other laws. So these three examples are what give us the method called principalism, if you will. Uh, so you find the principle, the intent of the law, and that includes punishments. And you kind of ask, how does that law point to Christ for fulfillment? You know, the first use of the law, right? It points us to Christ. The law of God points us to our need for Christ. So, honor your father and mother. Well, uh, all of us have been guilty of breaking that law at one point in our lives. Certainly as children, but even as adults, we don't always honor and obey our parents as we should. So, that points us to our need for a Savior. We violated the fifth commandment. We have violated God's law. We need a savior. At the same time, it goes on to what the second use of the law. How does that law guide us as Christians? Okay, so we have to look through the lens of the New Testament. We have to kind of ask ourselves, are there parallel commands in the New Testament? Is, does the New Testament explicitly handle that law? Are there examples of the apostles using that law um, that I that kind of guide me is the law quoted by Jesus and the apostles. Okay, so you can use that as a guide to sh to show you how to apply it, and then you take that application. You look at the principle uh, of both the the law and the punishment with that law, and you apply it to other areas of your life as in individual Christians in the home, in the church, in the workplace, in school, and yes, in um, the government. And that leads me to the third use of the law. How does that law function to restrain evil? How, how should civil governments today advocate for these things or honor these things or, or, or build their laws based on these principles in order to properly punish evil and restrain sin in the world? So it would... It would look at um, how we would establish civil rights and responsibilities, how we would handle judicial punishments and prohibitions. It would help us to look at how um, international relations should should be handled. So all these things are important. And I'll just give a couple examples. God's law requires that the testimony of two or three witnesses be given for putting someone to death. So if someone commits murder they're to be put to death, but only on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Is that something that can be discarded or should be ignored today? Um, well, no. Now, how would that law apply? Well, um, as a father, it applies in how I handle disputes amongst my children. So if I see 
you know, one of my children, one of my daughters basically tattletales or complains about the other one or, or says, hey, you know, dad, uh, you know, she did this to me. She hurt me, you know, such and such. Well, I can't just on the testimony of one witness just punish, just punish the sister, the other one, um, because of the testimony of, of, of her sister. That, that would not be good. That would ultimately lead us into a situation where, you know, dad just punishes us whenever we complain to him. Uh, even if there's no proof, just one testimony is enough to get dad to do what we want. And then in that way, you know, what happens is I become manipulated. As a father, they can manipulate me into uh, just, you know, punishing the other one whenever they feel like it. And it encourages them to just tattletale and to not um, either try to solve things themselves or to to basically tell the truth or gather evidence. So I need to make sure that I have two or three witnesses before I put down some kind of discipline um, for one of the children. But the same thing would apply um, in my workplace. Um, if one of my, my employees, if one of my subordinates uh, did something wrong or it was alleged that uh, he did something wrong, again, that, that guilt needs to be established by at least two or three witnesses. Uh, same thing in the civil government. We can't have a world where um, people are, are guilty until proven innocent or one person's testimony can ruin someone's life or destroy them or get them imprisoned. I mean, we've seen what happens. Uh, people often mention the uh, Salem witch trials, um, which in all honesty, they, people would blame Christianity for that, but that's not really the case. Uh, those individuals were not following God's law in any way. It simply took one person denouncing another person and they would get they would get hung, they would get punished. But that that concept of the Salem witch trials applies not just in that context. Um, if you read if you read any books about the Soviet Union, it was very common for neighbors to denounce each other. Um, all it took is for you to denounce your neighbor and say, hey, um, I heard him saying bad things about the Soviet government. I heard him making fun of Stalin. I heard him uh, praising capitalism. Okay, and just on that one testimony, your neighbor would get a visit in the middle of the night uh, by the secret police and would disappear. So it was a way to get rid of your neighbor if you had a dispute with him and then you could take his stuff, take his property, just get revenge. And ultimately, people lived in fear because at any moment you could be denounced. Uh, subordinates could denounce their superiors, neighbors could denounce each other, uh, and it just was a complete breakdown in society. And even in recent history in the United States, we see some examples of this happening, such as the uh, the Me Too, Me Too movement or Believe All Women, where with, with for example, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, you know, one testimony uh, attempted to ruin him, to destroy his reputation and his career and again whether or not he did any of those things the point is is that it requires two or three witnesses to establish guilt and that's just not it's not just a useful principle it's biblical and it's it's lawful and it should be the foundation for law so again 
that's just one example of that. Now, I would encourage you, uh, Christians, when you hear about God's law, please don't shun away from that. Please don't turn away from that or, or say that's boring. Uh, just, just read Psalm 119. Um, you know, the psalmist, he loves God's law. He meditates on it day and night. I mean, and, and certainly Jesus knew the law very well. Uh, and that's why he was able to uh, counter the Pharisees and show them their faults because he knew it so well. And he loved God's law. He loved the Father's word and the Father's law. And that's how we really live our lives by. You're going to live your life by some law. It's either going to be God's law or someone else's law. But it's going to be by some law. Maybe it's your own, but that is arbitrary and it basically is based on your personal emotions and feelings each day. Um, But the fact is that we're to be people of the book. We're to be people under God's law. Um, Not because we have to, but because we want to. Not because it saves us, but because we are saved and we want to live as people who are saved from their sins, people who love the Lord. So so I would just encourage you, look through God's laws and find ways. Um, how does it apply? You know, take the principles, look at it in light of Christ. How does the coming of Christ affect that law? And we see explicit examples of this with the food laws. I mean, in the Gospels, it even says, by this, he declared all foods clean. So that's why we don't have food laws in the way that the Old Testament Israelites did. Similarly, we don't sacrifice animals. And, and even though we could say, well, that's a ceremonial law. It had to do with the, with the worship of, of God in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, but those laws still apply today. The ceremonial laws still apply. But the thing is, is that they're fulfilled in Christ. Like, Sin still requires sacrifice and atoning sacrifice and blood sacrifice. And we still sin and we need to be covered and and our sins atoned for. But that happens by the blood of Christ. Okay, if we didn't have Christ, we would still be under the old covenant killing animals in the proper way in order to atone. Uh, But those just simply pointed forward to Christ. And so... The laws still apply. They don't just get erased or disappear. It's just that they've been fulfilled in Christ. And as long as I am in Christ, trusting in him, covered by his blood, then I have fulf- then, then the, they are fulfilled. I have fulfilled in Christ. They are fulfilled. Those laws regarding um, the requirement for blood sacrifice are fulfilled. So again, look at these laws in light of Christ. And then how do these laws apply to the New Testament church? individuals, uh, in your personal life, at home, at work, at school, and in the civil sphere. How do these laws, um, how can we find the first, second, and third use of these laws? Now, the last thing I will say about this is that these laws are the foundation or the starting point or the baseline for our behavior. And what I mean by that is that they show us what it means to love our neighbor. So for example, in Exodus chapter 22, verse 14, it says this, If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he, the borrower, shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So let's apply that to today. If I borrow 
my neighbor's lawnmower and it blows up when I'm using it. What is the, what's my responsibility? How do I love him? Or let's just say his car. You know, it could be his car. What, what, what if I borrow his car and he gives me permission to do so and I, so it breaks under my, under my care. Tire gets flat. Let's say flat tire uh, under, under my care. What does it mean to love my neighbor? Okay, that's the question. Now, the Bible would say, well, was he in the car with you? So were you driving the car and he was with you? Um, then, then you don't have to pay to have the, uh, the tire fixed or, you know, whatever, the oil changed or whatever part to be repaired. Okay, if it, wasn't, if, it just, if it just broke while you were driving it and it wasn't due to negligence on your part because he was there with you. He saw it happen. He saw saw the event take place. Um, if you borrowed it and he wasn't with you, then then even if it wasn't your fault, uh, your neighbor doesn't know that. And the honest thing and the right thing to do is to make it right, okay? To get it repaired, to get it fixed for your neighbor. Now, if you were renting that car, okay, just like in verse 15 of Exodus 22, it says if the owner, if it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. So if you rented that car, then um, you've, you've already paid for it to be, for the wear and tear of it to be used. That's, that, that's included in the price that you paid for. And so you don't have to pay above and beyond that extra to make it fixed, okay? It's already been repaired. So uh, by the fee that you've paid. So this is an example of the baseline. That's the baseline. But let's say... That I borrow, I borrow the car or the lawnmower from um, a Christian neighbor, and it blows up, or I break it, and I go to him and I say, "Brother, uh, this is what happened. Um, here's a check. I'm going to make full restitution for this for this issue. Um, I apologize for what happened." And then let's say that my Christian brother says, "You know what, Eric? Um, look, I know that you're doing the right thing, but honestly." Don't worry about it. I, I got this covered. You don't need to pay me. It's We're good to go, brother. We're good to go. Is he allowed to do that? Yes, he is. He is absolutely allowed to not hold me to the law in that regard. The bare minimum is for me to fulfill that requirement to make restitution. But it he has the freedom to to basically let me go, to show me grace. Um, he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to. It, it would be certainly right for me to, to pay to have that fixed. But he's certainly free to um, let me go, to, to not um, bind me to that requirement. So th- that's what I'm trying to say is that the law is the baseline. That's how you love your neighbor. But each person can continue to try to show more and more love to each other, more and more grace to each other there, but there's no requirement to do so. That is above and beyond uh, what is required. So um, that is really, uh, I think, the best way to look at these laws and how we as Christians can apply them today. There's always, there's always room for mercy. Uh, mercy can't be demanded because mercy, by definition, um, is undeserved. So it can't be demanded. If it was demanded, it wouldn't be mercy, it would be law. 
law and justice can be demanded. Mercy cannot. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind. So with that, I hope that you found this episode helpful uh, as we look at God's law here uh, and applying the Old Testament laws to the New Testament and to new covenant believers today. So again, if you have any questions about this or want to uh, have me follow up on other topics related to this, um, any questions about God's law, please, um, you can go to my Facebook page, just search for the GBG podcast there. Uh, you can submit a message to me there. You can email me at the GBG podcast at gmail.com. We're on all the social media sites, Twitter, Patreon, like I said. Um, so please don't hesitate to contact me. Um, and I pray that you found this episode to be helpful. So until next time, take care and peace.